0: Entertainment, inspiration, and building community. This is the Soundtrack of Savannah. This is your Savannah Philharmonic. Welcome to the Soundtrack of Savannah, the podcast brought to you by the Savannah Philharmonic. I'm Dee Daniels, and I am just beyond thrilled to welcome my next guest, Scotland-based American conductor Kellen Gray, who are are just days away from uh, actually Seen on stage performing as guest conductor um, with the fantastic performance, the genius of Mozart at the Lucas Theater. That will be August twenty sixth. Kellum, welcome to the show. Thank you for sitting down and chatting with us for a few minutes.
1: Oh, thank you for having me. It's it's a real joy. I'm really looking forward to this.
0: This is going to be an amazing, amazing uh, concert. It's going to be just I know so moving and and so many things that have gone into it. And I want to talk a little bit about. Uh, how you're feeling about performing at the Lucas Theater, what an iconic place to perform in Savannah. And I know it's going to be just wonderful to take the stage.
1: Yes. You know, it's funny. I used to be a Savannah resident and I've seen many a show uh, at the Lucas Theater. I mean, everything from Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros to the Savannah Philharmonic themselves. And, you know, it's I've, I've been such more of an audience member than an actual musician on stage there. And so I'm just looking forward to actually, you know, Well, doing it on the stage and being the person that everybody's well, not looking at because hopefully they're not looking at me; they're looking at the orchestra. But you know, (laughs) Um, actually being able to do it, you know, as the artist on stage, so I'm I'm incredibly excited and just excited to be back in Savannah, a city I love so much.
0: Yeah, of course, we're excited to roll out the the welcome mat for you. And you know, I think. I want to talk about your background, but before we do that, I want to talk specifically about uh, the genius of Mozart and, mm-hmm. and what everyone can expect uh, when they when they come. I, this is such a, a powerhouse to take on, I feel like. And and I know looking at your background, you're, you're so respectful of this music and, and just of the design of it. But also uh, something that I, I recognize from you is like getting the getting the own identity with that particular night, you know, you've got your own identity imprint that's going to be on it that night.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, often when we think about Mozart, we think about it being sort of the uh, the closest thing to perfection in classical music as we can get. And such so like a pristine, um, manicured, like sense of music. And frankly, if you knew Mozart's personality, he was kind of everything but that. Um, and so, you know, he's very sort of irreverent. If you've seen the movie Amadeus, I think that sort of gives you a little bit of insight into sort of his uh, his personality and his laugh and and sort of uh, his sense of humor. And I think that some of the pieces that we actually perform uh, on this program are really, really reminiscent of that. So I'm really looking forward to not just presenting the manicured, but a bit more of the manic side of Mozart as well, which I think makes up a lot of the genius. I think, you know, 50% of the genius is the refineness. And 50% of it is the sort of the manicness of him. And I'm really looking forward to presenting that and to everybody, particularly the 36th Mozart symphony, his Lent Symphony, which I think is a bit of both. Um, it's one that he wrote, you know, for the the court, the royal court of Lin. And so it sort of reflects this sort of sense of royalty. And he puts his little musical jokes and uh and little daggers in there. And then also presenting a composer that I think not many people have heard of, in Jose Mauricio Nunez Garcia who was a genius in his own right. I shouldn't say genius in art. Right. He's just a genius. Um, but simply has a um a different presentation of classical music that was very also reminiscent of Mozart since Mozart was an influence of his.
0: You know, and I think as an audience, we really want the manic side. You know what I mean? Like I mean, it's, it's like you're there and and you want both. You want all of it. You, you know, you want to experience that. And, you know, as a conductor, how 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 do you get that across to the audience in such a way where they're held in those kind of tender moments but they're also just like wowed in in kind of those manic moments
1: yeah, you want my musical nerdy uh, I do I do uh, so you know I I you know I guess if we're talking about the different sides here so both the manicured and the manic um for me there's like the very sort of really idiocentric um uh, like nerdy version of this and there's frankly just the way you feel about it and for me, uh, when I listen to music and when I look at the score, or I should say first, when you listen to music, and you listen to many different recordings. You're hearing not just the music that was written by the composer, but also the person's interpretation of it. And you're going to have your own interpretation, your, your own filter in sort of how you uh, ingest the music and how it sort of comes back uh, through the orchestra and to the audience. And uh, and so I like to listen to many different interpretations. And hopefully, you know, what I observe is some, absorb is some amalgamation of all of them and not in sort of any direct influence. And so you're sort of being informed by all the people that you hear and then what you see on the score. And for me, what I see on the score oftentimes is I love seeing the contrast. And, uh, and I think particularly in the grand partita that you'll hear by Mozart and also the 36th symphony, they're both works of major, major contrast. Um, and so you try to work to bring out those contrasts both in, um, a way that's obvious and also that feels organic. Uh, because, you know, transitions often are that either in life, you know, they're either feel natural or they feel very abrupt. And you're trying to make a decision on like, should this feel abrupt or should it feel natural? Are we going to be surprised by this transition or we're going to smell it coming? And the way you sort of achieve that is through, you know, a variety of techniques. And that's um, just with any other occupation, whether you're a chef, a truck driver, uh, a surgeon, there's always refined techniques to do it. And me as a conductor, I don't I don't uh, make any sound on the stage. Um, but I have to sort of galvanize the forces in front of me with an orchestra to help them do that. And often the best way to inform that is simply with information, the way you show it in your body um, and also in the way you sort of instruct and, and, and work with them. Because many times they have great ideas, too. Um, and so I try to show it in my body first. But the only way I can show it in my body is have it really, really internalized and have basically the loudest voice inside of my head that's really playing the music ahead of time before the orchestra is playing it. Um, and that just comes from really, really rigorous study. And in that study, often I break things down into like five ways to express music. There's time, tone, dynamic, articulation, and vibrato. And so time is basically, you know, your tempo. Um, tone is like how, how dense or how frail the, the tone is, uh, how rich the, the actual sound we're making or how sort of transparent. Um, what's the time, tone, dynamic? Oh, dynamic is how loud and soft it is. Um, articulation has to do with how pointed something is, or how rounded something is, uh, how jagged it may be, or how sort of um, legato, how connected, how sustained. And then vibrato is basically how much you vibrate the tone, essentially. Is it that operatic vibrato like you hear from an opera singer, or is it very like small and subtle? And, and so for all those things that I mentioned as far as the transition being abrupt or organic or something being shocking or something being shy... Um, to me, it's all a recipe of those five things, time, tone, articulation, dynamic, and vibrato are the five ingredients that make music into a character, basically.
0: Oh, you are a chef. You are a musical chef. I I feel all of that. That's fantastic. Um, And that's, you know, that's exactly what I was, I was searching for that. What are the pieces? How do you, how do you pick it apart, put it together, you know? And, and really, I think one thing that, that rings really true, uh, with you that also, uh, you know, we got a chance to to sit down uh, on our first episode and to talk with our artistic director and conductor, uh, Katara Harada. And, you know, same sort of um, toolbox, different tools with every conductor, it seems, you know what I mean? So it's like, it feels so organically yours, yet at the same time, you're bringing out someone else's work and you're interpreting all, you know, it's just, it really is a a beautiful process. I'd love to talk a little bit about your your background, Kellen. I'm just so intrigued by this. Now, you are originally from South Carolina, correct? Originally, yes. Yeah, absolutely. But yet you are you're everywhere. I mean, you're you're doing a little bit of everything. I
1: have to thank the folk music of South Carolina for sort of where I am now. Um, you know, I was born in the I guess you, if you're if you're from South Carolina, you refer to it as the old English district. Uh, some people might refer to it as the upstate, but just a little far north than that. Um, but I've spent a significant time, uh, a significant amount of time in the low country, both. Being born like up in Rock Hill, South Carolina, up near the Charlotte border, but also being a Charleston resident uh, for a number of years. I think up to about four years or so as a Charleston resident um, and then also being a Savannah resident for about five years or so. Spending a lot of time in the Low Country, which really uh, informed my music making and reinforcing the music that I was born with, which is Gullah influenced. And then actually being and living in Gullah communities and being really entrenched in the community. And uh, how do I say this? Uh, working to promote and preserve the culture. Uh, and so I've built so much of my career basically in specializing in the composers that use that music, use the the call and responses, the the spirituals, um, the ring shouts, the jubas, the cakewalks, um, the field hollers, all the folk music that basically or in early jazz forms like swing, blues, so on and so forth. All the music that would have basically been incubated in the Low Country, whether it be South Carolina or Georgia, is really the works that I've specialized in, uh, and I. I sort of take to them and interpret them with the same rigor that I think some people would do for, for Bartok and for Mahler and for um, Lutislavski and whatever other, uh, or, or, or Rayvon Williams. What other uh, composers that use folk music as their primary idiom uh, or their, their point of emphasis and go after it with a real sort of emphasis for authentic performance practice?
0: I've been so uh we we've lived here, my partner and I have lived here for for just over two years, and and I've been so impressed um when we've gotten to know neighbors and, and people that have grown up in Savannah in the low country, and and some of which who have grown up uh in, in with a that gullah influence and, and you know preserving that story is so important and you know, getting to know that and I'm I'm learning and I'm going to be learning that for a long time. I'm so proud to be around people who can tell me these stories or know a parent who can tell me these stories. And, uh, you know, we turn down a street and it's like, you have no idea what ha- happened on this street. And let me tell you the stories that, you know, having that kind of influence on your career must be so special. I know that that's something that you are, you know, every day walking with that, Portion of your identity, how do you and how have you translated that into uh, your career and the things that you do?
1: Well, you know, a lot of it is performing the the composers that actually use that as a a source material for the works that they write. For example, um, you know, not to plug myself, but in October, I have an album coming out uh, that I recorded with the Royal Scottish National Orchestra called uh, African American Voices 2, um, it features one of the pieces of the three that are on the album is Margaret Bond's Montgomery Variations. It's a, a piece that's sort of seven ruminations, and variations on uh, the spiritual I want Jesus to walk with me and which is dedicated to the life and works of Martin Luther King. And so that's a song that's a, a, a whether you want to call it a folk song or a spiritual that I've literally sung for as long as I can remember. I mean, in my earliest memories, I was singing that song uh, at Liberty Hill Missionary Baptist Church in Catawba, South Carolina. And so, when it comes to carrying that around in my career, there's just a certain way in which the song is sung that I can't undo. Mm. Uh, that's a that's just a part of me that I have to like, not not just try to work to, but I have to work to get the orchestra to play it in the way that it would have been sung in Catawba, South Carolina, and that in and of itself, the way it's sung in Catawba, South Carolina is informed by the way those Gullah traditions were made in the low country of South Carolina or in Georgia or wherever. Um, And obviously those are informed by, you know, a certain amount of uh, generational experiences, both both, you know, tragic and positive um, that, you know, you can't help but carry around as part of your day um, every single day, every place I go. And, you know, often I'm, you know, the only person with the background that I'm from where I I live in Scotland and in Glasgow or in Edinburgh, wherever I may be. And um, it's been a real journey for me to not just, not just to carry it with me, because I mean, often, you know, I'll be very frank, you know, in the United States, it comes with a certain amount of weightiness and and sometimes some very traumatic memories, and uh, but also some really great stuff. But so much of the time in Glasgow or in Scotland or in the UK, when I have to share this, you're sharing the parts that really get to uplift people. you know, Everybody's at least peripherally aware of the tragedies, but you get to really bring people close to your culture by showing, sharing the beauty of it. Um, the beauty of these work songs the beauty of the spirituals i mean believe it or not getting a scottish orchestra to uh to do gullah claps and and sing songs and actually sing so they really know the music from an organic standpoint when they perform it. and i think frankly um you know we were able to you know perform it on such an authentic and, and high level because people are willing to actually like share uh with that and so that's that's really been a i don't know a really amazing journey uh as it takes something that i i thought was just you know Frankly, here we go singing these same songs every Sunday. <laughs> That's how I'm thinking when I'm five, and it had no idea that you know, like it would be one of the great joys of my life to be able to share them with people all over the world that it never heard them.
0: Right? Uh, you know, I just I grew up with uh, an evangelist grandfather, and and so there there is something about singing spirituals that it's a it's a rhythm. There's a rhythm and a and a feeling, and a, and there's so much, so many elements. But it's almost, uh, you know, to even teach it, to teach that song to someone who may have never heard it or may may have never felt that kind of a rhythm in a song or, or a piece. It's almost like, you know, you might want to grab their hand and sort of put it on your heart and just say, just just let me show you the rhythm. Can you feel it in my body? I, I'm sort of picturing you trying to do something like that when you're translating this. It's
1: one of the ways in which you connect with people without barriers, I think, you know, when it comes to folk music or music, with you know, you get rid of the instruments, you get rid of music theory, you get rid of the sheet music, all the things. It's just basically sing it the way I sing it or sing it the way that fits the way I sing it. or I'm going to sing it the way you fit to sing it or I'm going to add a new rhythm to the way you sing or you sing. The, so we're getting on the same page, but we don't have like all this stuff in front of us. You know, we don't have to like we don't now have we don't need more dots and lines on the page to influence it you're making eye contact, you're breathing together, you're feeling the same rhythm without sort of these, you know, technical obstacles. And then often I find when we're doing folk music and we're doing our spirituals, it's all about celebrating the differences rather than like, uh, how do I say this? Rather than making it so competitively comparative,
0: mm. you know,
1: we're really, you know, we're not trying to like win an award here. We're not trying to judge it. We're not trying to say whether it's good or bad. We're just simply, you know, having fun and really connecting. And so, for me, you know, spirituals and folk music, that's, that's, I think it's just one of the great ways that we really, uh, we can really get, connect with people on a mental way and a and, and mentally and sort of spiritually even, um, and even a very, very physical way. I mean, it's just, I think it's, it's why we feel so good when we, when we sing folk music and we sing spirituals, or even when we sing jazz, um, is that we're getting a lot of the obstacles out of the way and just really like coming together in a very, very organic way.
0: I mean, you think about how how much music in general, uh, no matter the age or, or where it's coming from, unites all of us. You know, and it does have that opportunity to remove barriers, and and it's just it's a beautiful thing. And I can't wait to see you uh, on stage at the Lucas Theater, and 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 really just feel all of that. You know, um, watching your back. We watch your back a lot. I know so. <laughs>
1: I'll make sure I'm not linty or anything. (laughs)
0: Sometimes I just want you to put a sign back there just to say, I see you. <laughs> so you're the assistant conductor of the Royal Scottish National Orchestra, and also the associate conductor of the Charleston Symphony. Um, talk a little bit about uh, how that back and forth is for you. What does that look like?
1: Well, I see a lot of American Airlines and British Airways. You know, I see those folks a lot. In fact, sometimes both um, at Heathrow and in the Charleston Airport, I recognize some of the same staff um, coming through. But yeah, it's you know, you you make it work. Yeah, I think that's one of the um unusual beautiful things about being a conductor is that there is often a lot of travel. Um I was I've been really, really fortunate that both organizations are supportive of me being in both places. You know, I spent a number of years at the Charleston Symphony. I think I was there for uh nearly three years before I accepted the position at the RSNO, the Royal Scottish National Orchestra. And uh and in fact so gener- so thankful to them that they actually let me live in Glasgow and still work with the Charleston Symphony, simply because the RSNO's schedule is is so very rigorous. Uh, to give you an idea of how rigorous, there's uh, we meet every single week of the year, basically, except uh, the weeks of July. The orchestra takes a holiday. Wow. So even, even the week of Christmas, even the week of New Year's, we're doing concerts and usually, uh, usually molt- not just multiple concerts, but multiple projects per week. Um, so if you can imagine like what a normal subscription program week looks like, you know, one concert, few rehearsals, we usually have one of those per week, and also probably an education program, and also maybe a contemporary project or a community project. So had some very, very, very busy weeks. Um, Mm. You know, I'm in rehearsal six, six or seven days a week. um, And the Charleston Symphony has a quite a schedule themselves, usually eight masterworks a year, four pops and somewhere around 10 other um, you know, projects that are auxiliary or special uh, in their own way, including education projects, community projects, so on and so forth, or collaborations. And and you just make a schedule or calendar that um, that fits both organizations. And, uh, and you just try to get some sleep on a flight every now and then. Right. That's, that's really kind of how it works. And um, and I've, I'm, I'm just really lucky that I've been, I've been working with two organizations that are both flexible enough, um, you know, to allow me to be in both places and think enough of me to allow me to be there.
0: You brought up uh, the educational programming, uh, which is is fantastic. I know in Charleston, as it is here in Savannah, and you know being able to have that piece is so important. And and I feel in this community, and I'd love for you to speak to Charleston as well. It's so appreciated. The community is so appreciative of the access that is there um, with kids uh, being able to play an instrument, try an instrument, you know, uh, there's that piece of uh, bringing, again, bringing down barriers where, you know, some a family might not think that it's accessible to them. And yet they kind of get into the world of, of, uh, of the orchestra and the symphony and they're like, Whoa, it is. Okay. This is, this is, this is cool. Yeah. You know, I think,
1: when it comes to music education, I think it's just vital. You know, it's it's the only way we're going to continue to survive as orchestras is to continually making new lifelong lovers of music. But I think one of the places where we struggle is that we don't interface with our audiences the same way we interface with the youth that we do when we introduce them to music. You know, I think one of the great things we do is like often when we do these education programs, you know, we're allowing them to participate in, uh, in creating music like we do we're on the stage, whether the students are clapping, they're singing, we're really connecting in a way that is, again, organic, in a way we're able to connect. When um, we're doing folk music, when we're just having fun, like we're making up a song, but we don't quite do that with the audiences. And so, you know, for one, I'm, I'll stick my neck out here and challenge every, every orchestra to figure out a way in which we can engage with our audiences in the same way we engage, like, uh, on the stage, to allow our audiences to participate and not just watch. But I think one of the things that people are grateful for when it comes to music education is that we try to do it broadly um, and try to make sure everybody has access to it, and that we do it in a way that everybody can participate. Um, one of I think the next steps is trying to not just do broad uh, engagement, but also to do deep engagement. Like, how do we how do we we remove the barriers to allow people access to music? But how do we create pathways in which people can have uh, make it more possible to have a life in music? I mean, when I think about myself like, I'm a one in a million shot here. Like, I mean, I come from, I'm born in a place where there was not an orchestra to be had nearby and driving distance, nor to see one. In fact, if I hadn't been lucky enough for the Charlotte Symphony to cross the border into South Carolina and do a community concert, I would have never seen an orchestra. Um, Would not have known how it works, would not know anything about it. Couldn't afford to take the lessons. If I didn't have a, a violin teacher that literally refused to charge me a dime mm. for lesson, I mean, like, two and three hour lessons, because we saw that I had talent and refused to let me pay him for it, it wouldn't have been possible. Had that teacher not found a violin maker that would basically be willing to almost donate an instrument to me um, because I couldn't afford to pay for one. If that same teacher couldn't like call somebody up a college professor and be like, hey, this this kid started really late, he's got talent, he works really hard, he's really far behind, but if you give him a shot, I guarantee he'll get there. And so, like, all those people had to basically clear those barriers for me to even have a career. And so and I'm, I'm just going to be, like, very blank about this one. So when people say, like, um, it's like, what do you mean there's obstacles? Like, look, you made it. It's like, yeah, I'm the only one. There's so, I'm I made it. But mm-hmm. there's so many others. I mean, like, so many others that didn't, that should have. So many more that were more talented than me, more dedicated than me. But I got lucky that the obstacle sort of fell just the right way and just out of the way for me to make it through. So, you know, I I think that everybody, as you said, is like really, really excited that we have really broad engagement. We have our Carnegie Hall link up concerts. We go into schools and teach uh, Mozart, Beethoven and Brahms and all these things like that and like allow students to access and feel music, allow them to participate. And I just I guess my challenge uh, to everybody is to find a way in which we can like make it more possible for someone to have a life in music if they choose to. Um, and then also maybe we find some other ways like for folk music and, and such to, to uh, and spirituals and things like this to make their way into our, our education curriculums also. I mean, if we can use Beethoven, Bach, ba- Brahms, I mix them all, Beethoven, Bach, and Brahms to teach melody, harmony, and rhythm, I think we can do the same thing with uh, with jazz and with spirituals. They all use melody, harmony, and uh, and rhythm and, you know, I think and I think that's a real way in which we can uh, we can step over another one of those barriers and like really connect. So, I mean, I, I can never be more excited to do education programs because you get like a couple thousand kids riled up and excited about music. But I think there's first even more to be had. And I think there's uh, we can take them even deeper uh, into into this water of music and, and really help them along. If we can just challenge ourselves to, to reach a little deeper.
0: I I fully agree. You're absolutely right. I I, you know, I think about sometimes the the teacher, the principal that had an impact on me. I think about the door that was open here, that was open there, that led to the path that I was on, that led to the journey that I'm I'm at today. And 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 I get nervous about our young people not having that maybe, you know, not experiencing that one person that may have opened a door or or set the path on fire for them. You know, I get nervous. So you're right. I think accessibility, you know, more paths, you know, so that more kids can actually get involved, I think is, is so, so important. Did you know from an early age that you wanted to get into music? What What was your trajectory like at that tender time? No, no, I
1: had no idea I was going to get into music. Music was just kind of always there, you know, like from whether it's in church, hearing spirituals and songs or whether it was like my dad singing or where there's Marvin Gaye on the radio, like whenever we got in the car or me rummaging through their records and just putting them on and like laying in the living room, looking at the ceiling. It was just kind of always around. Um, I was lucky that I didn't really come from a traditional musical family. In fact, my dad was a music major. He's a singer. Um, he chose to go into sports as his career. He's a football coach. But um, but I remember just hearing him sing. In fact, one of my earliest childhood memories is seeing him in a community production of Ain't Misbehaving. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, yeah. But, and I remember sitting in the audience at Winthrop, uh, trying to think of the name of the auditorium on the campus of Winthrop University in Rock Hill. And my mom is sitting right next to me. A lot of our family is sitting next to me. But I remember less of the music and more of the fact that in this one particular scene, there was a woman sitting on my dad's lap, and he's singing to her. And that woman wasn't my mom. And I was Uh-oh. just, so, I was so confused. It's like a four-year-old. And I was, like, hold on, hold on, this is this is wild. Like, hold on a minute. Um, but no, so like, I guess it's still a the Music was always around. I just never really thought of it as a career path. I was actually that kid that was collecting every frog and snake that uh, that you saw in the yard. And I very much wanted to be a herpetologist from a, a very oh, early. Wow. I, I knew I wanted to be that since I was probably about five or six years old. Um, like long before I could spell herpetologist, I wanted to be one. I used to have, I mean, I had terrariums, aquariums, notebooks. I would take notes on their behavior and feeding patterns and all this stuff. And I, and I literally planned to do that all the way up until about midway through my senior year when I decided to, to study music. Cause I just realized I'm like, I'm not good at math. Um, And, you know, yes. to be, to be a biologist of any form, you have to do math. And I wasn't sure I liked doing math. And so again, I was lucky that I had already been studying with this particular violin teacher. And, um, and you know, I had, the, I guess, the support system in him alone to really sort of drive me and push me forward um, and, you know, tell me how I needed to work. It's like, son, you're going to have to, like, get up every day uh, before school, 5 a.m. You're going to need to practice three hours before you go to school. Um, if you're going to keep doing sports, you're going to have to, you know, study after you get home from practice. I end up quitting sports so I could, you know, spend more time practicing the violin and, And frankly, he prepared me for something else I wasn't prepared for um, at the time. You know, I guess this, and this gets sort of gets into some of the social aspects that we're approaching in music at the time or right now. Um, You know, my mom was uh, president of the local chapter, the NAACP. So I was very much uh, entrenched in a lot of the social um, uh, aspects uh, of society that pertain to that. And then my violin teacher was one of the two musicians that integrated the Charlotte Symphony in the 60s. Wow he was able to, just before I left for school, prepare me for some of the challenges that I would face uh, in that area. And so again, like having no idea that music was something I wanted to pursue, it was just kind of there. And then again, somehow things just kind of fall just the right way. And you meet just the right people that sort of get you on the path to where I realized suddenly, like literally with only weeks to go to apply, um, it's like, I think music is what I actually want to do. I want to play the violin and but am I ready? Do I have the tools? And, you know, just through all these many different things, it turns out I did have the tools. And so, um, just just go off and try it.
0: Those frogs are sad that you didn't continue on that path, but (laughs) (laughs) we are so blessed and happy that you did. So, uh, you know, oh my goodness. Do you remember, I think this is always such a A fun question, because, you know, I I feel like we all have these these gifts and talents within us and and to be able to find that in ourselves and then share it with the world really is such a a wonderful thing. and, And what I feel like enriches all of us when, you know, we all share that sort of thing that moment kind of when you come to the place where, you know, this is, I do want to go this way. I do want to, I have these talents within me and I do want to share that and build on that and go in this direction. Do you remember the first time you got paid in music to do something? Do you remember your first paid moment?
1: I do. Um, Let's see. I can't remember which one happened first, but I can think of two. There was one in which I was in high school. I was probably a junior in high school And I played, there was a a community uh, choir that was uh, in Rock Hills, the Rock Hill Ecumenical Choir. And they hired an orchestra for their like annual concert. And somehow I got the phone call to be in the orchestra. I had no idea what I was doing or or why I was there. There was either that or there was also a gentleman in town who, I think he was the one who hired me for the ecumenical choir, who uh, was a pianist. And he played in weddings and he hired me to play with him uh, as a violinist. I mean the way. So those were my first paychecks, and I remember just well, my first paychecks as a violinist. I actually worked for my uncle's uh, lawn care service before that, Um and so I, I cut grass to make all of my like paychecks before that. And that's that's how good I money
0: too. Yes,
1: yeah, it was it was great. But yeah, I couldn't believe. In fact, as a matter of fact, as you say that, I couldn't believe that I was getting paid for violin as opposed to smelling like gasoline and in right. dirt. Coming home at the end of the day, that was amazing. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I'm sure it was. I always think that's such a joyous moment, like when you know you that first time where you're putting putting this new talent out into the world, this new this new gift, and and somebody writes your paycheck. It's like, wow, okay, yeah. <laughs> okay.
1: I could not believe it. That actually, I haven't thought about that. Thank you for bringing that up. Oh, wow, what a memory.
0: Yeah, it's it, I I love it. I love those memories. Um, uh, talk a little bit about um, uh, you mentioned this earlier uh, with African American voices, but talk a little bit about uh the importance of of shining a light and 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 raising sort of the bar with uh african american uh music and and culture and and just the richness of that that i think you have been um such a huge part of and 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 kind of where that's going for you right now and and how that's a part of what you're doing
1: sure sure so you know, actually, I'm going to do a little challenge for our listeners, I guess, to answer this question. I want everybody that's listening to sort of just take a moment, and I want you to name five German composers. All right, mm. I'm sure you got five. Yeah. All right, to name five Italian composers. I'm sure you got five by now. Yeah, okay. Five American composers. I'm sure it takes a little longer to think of those American composers, and it's right. not because have a lack of them it's because we've actually sort of narrowed american music and frankly american composers are such a fine funnel that we usually think of only two people uh copeland and everybody that sounds like him and gershwin and everybody that sounds like him and mm. we, we exclude everybody else right And frankly, i mean african-american music is american music um and i think that's a fact that's absolutely irrefutable in fact uh, to the point that everybody likes to credit Dvorak for using uh, both Native American and African-American folk music as source material for a certain period of his compositional life. I mean, he himself said it, like, African-American folk music is the first folk music of America mm. that's made here on American by Americans. And so, you know, I think it's just frankly a fact that's irrefutable. And uh, it, it's and, and frankly, I think that we've had so many opportunities um as Americans in classical music to have our own identity. And we sort of turned away from them many times in, in, in different points for different reasons, you know, whether it be um, whether it be the social issues that were that would surround the surge of African-American composers that we had to where, you know, obviously segregation permit, prevented them from being in the concert hall or whether it's the breakdown of tonality uh, in some part of the 20th century in which we decided to abandon things that sound like Copland for a little while. Um, and then another issues that are closer you know, to now. But I think what's really, really important is that considering all that, we're just missing some chapters. And I think there's just so much good music to be had. I, in fact, I'm going to do a plug again and challenge everybody here. Um, you know, there's a, a composer that I absolutely love and just, um, and I would stand on the table or stand on a soapbox or against anybody. Her name is Margaret Bonds. She wrote a piece called The Montgomery Variations. It's a uh, Seven variations on that. Uh, I, I, I want Jesus to walk with me, as yeah, I mentioned earlier, and that's on you know the upcoming album. I guarantee you, when you listen to it, it's American music. Yes, it's based on spirituals, but I think you'll also hear you know Copeland and things that sound like Copeland in there. I think you'll hear you know many different folk musics that you're used to, and it's not just hearing the spiritual. You're going to hear things that you've heard uh, in country music. You're going to hear things that you've heard in jazz. You're going to hear things that you've heard in bluegrass. You're going to hear things that you've heard in just about every American like, style that you can think of or anything that you associate with America. And I think that every single person that hears it can identify with it um, as a respect to, you know, specifically African-American composers, as you asked. You know, I don't think that we can in good conscience continue to say that we're inviting a new audience and trying to invite a new audience, but not actually have that reflective in the programming that we put on stage. Or in the musicians that we decide to hire, or in the people that are on our administrative staffs. And so, you know, and, and frankly, you know, it, it's what you, in the same way that we prioritize um, those that are our faces of our organizations as who we invite into our organizations, it's the same thing that applies to the music that we listen to. And I think if you can subscribe to the theory that all talent is equally distributed around the world according to race, gender, everything. I think that we all understand that those are not the reasons. The lack of talent is not the reasons that we don't hear the music on the stage. It's because we made choices for it not to be there. Um, and so I, I say that and to you know, challenge and push a little bit and say that, you know, challenge yourself to listen to something else. And I, I guarantee you, you'll find things that you like. I actually spend just a little bit of time, even just a few minutes every day to try to find music I've never heard before. And I'm absolutely shocked sometimes at the things that even despite the fact that I take that challenge every day, there's still things I find to listen to and like, oh my gosh, like I can't believe I've never heard of this before, um, which is how I discovered Margaret Bonds. I heard her, um, well, I shouldn't say discovered her, because she, obviously she was along, she existed before I heard of her, but um, her I, three of her songs, uh, or a set of her songs, um, three dream portraits, really, really beautiful songs, but the songs of the seasons. I just happened to hear them while we were early in the pandemic, sitting at home and like looking for music, and I just stumbled upon these on YouTube, and you know, apparently every singer that sings apparently has heard of these songs, but I certainly hadn't. And I was just absolutely aghast and honestly offended that I had not heard these before. And then also ended up listening to them four times in a row and literally with tears in my eyes um, and like called my partner who was uh, at her home at the time. I was like, get on Zoom with me right now. You have to share screen and like listen to these songs. And we listened to them four more times and just absolutely in disbelief uh, that we hadn't heard these before. And, uh, you know, I, I just think that it's music not only that everybody can relate to, especially if you're, you know, lived in this country and heard this music. But I think that if you really say you love classical music and you want it to grow, this is one of the prime areas that I think you know you're obligated to search in. So, um, you know, I just I just I would advocate the that everybody sort of lean the focus towards it, and to simply because it's there and it's also missing. So, and I, I guarantee you'll find something. And if you don't find anything you like, you call me. Right. I will give you a phone book long list of composers to listen to, um, and I guarantee you'll find something. Or um, if you want to go ahead and do that yourself, you can check out the African Diaspora Music Project online. I happen to be one of the assistant editors of that. It's a database of all uh, black composers or composers of African descent. That's much like the Daniels orchestration manual. You can find just about every uh, composer of African descent that we've heard of so far there and find works that they've written.
0: Yeah, that's a great research tool right there. That's fantastic. And uh, we'll put that in the show notes as well so that everybody can uh, just click on that and and take a look. And what a great challenge to, you know, introduce yourself to something new, uh, music wise every day even just for a few minutes what a fantastic challenge i, I love that well we are uh, insanely excited about seeing you on stage at the lucas theater on uh, saturday august 26th and the genius of mozart i know it's going to be just fabulous you said you spent some time in savannah do you have some favorite savannah spots that uh yeah. if you have a little time we, we might see you at you know
1: you know i i spent i'll just say i spent some rowdy years in savannah um mm-hmm. uh, so, you know, there's some spots I could name. Y'all probably already go to them. Um, but believe it or not, I will tell you this little quick story. I actually probably the reason I became a conductor is because I lived in Savannah. Really? Uh, yeah. Like, you know, I I graduated music school, freelance as a musician and spent a few years like basically out of music because I got a little burned out. And one of the things I did, along with like bartending and so many other things, is I worked at Savannah B Company. Um, and I, I started working there as a part time salesperson, eventually became a um, uh general manager of the flagship store on Broughton Street and uh, worked very closely with Ted. And Ted was sort of my beekeeping mentor and became a beekeeper. And frankly, when I came back to playing music again, I really saw the orchestra as very much reflective of a beehive. Mm. Um, With bees, their lives, well, at least worker bees, the female bees, um, they change jobs throughout their life as far as what they do in the hive. And in a symphony and a piece of music with an orchestra, your role changes throughout the piece many, many times. And the conductor, the beekeeper's job is really to help facilitate and make things a little easier and convey information that's not easily, you know, transmitted so quickly and um, or so easily. And uh, I just sort of started seeing the orchestra as sort of a as a as a super organism, much like a hive. And it really sort of planted the seed for me to pursue conducting as opposed to um, as opposed to playing in the orchestra. And so. You know, I just thank Savannah in that case. And also, you know, thank the Bee Company and Ted. Um, right. I'll give, give you a text, Ted. You got to come to the Shout conference. out. Yes. Look, you know, I just I thank them for, you know, putting me on this path, uh, you know, to where I am now.
0: I love that. I'm never going to be able to unsee that now, that beehive and the orchestra. I, that just that blew my mind. I, I absolutely love that. I mean, it totally makes sense. Um, and Savannah is excited to have you. Uh Rowdy or not, or both, I like <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, you know, empire is no longer here i but I can't tell you how many nights I' spent. I probably should say that let me let me pull up, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let me pull up. <laughs> Yeah, we can talk about that off the air. We can, talk about, we can
0: talk about that later. It's fine. I'll see you at McDonough's. No, I mean I'll see you after
1: <laughs> yes. yes, yeah. I'll, I'll the lounge. Yeah, I'll see you there.
0: Yeah. I'll yeah. see you there. Um, it'll be fine. Um, Kellengray.com is a great place to to go to of course uh find out all the wonderful things that is, is going on with Kellen and and sort of keep track. Uh, you're on Instagram as well. And just so many cool things that you're doing. And I, I'm excited to meet you in person um, on on Saturday, August 26th at the Lucas Theater. And we're gonna have a wonderful time. And I know it's just gonna be fantastic uh, with you at the helm is gonna make it even better. So thank you for taking some time with us and, and we're excited to see you soon.
1: Oh, of course, of course, thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure to chat with you. Looking forward to seeing you in person and everybody. And let's go have a, a drink at McDonald's, like you said.
0: Absolutely, awesome. Welcome to your open invitation to enjoy music with your friends and neighbors. This is the soundtrack of Savannah. You can also show support by sponsoring a season concert or our Fill the Neighborhood series or annual Fill the Park event in Forsyth Park. You can even sponsor one of our talented musicians or host them in your home during the season. For more information on sponsorship levels and a full list of concerts and community events, please visit us at savannahphilharmonic.org. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram, and be sure to subscribe to the Sav Phil podcast you're listening to right now, so you can be in the know, behind the scenes, and center stage at your Savannah Philharmonic.